Here is a story that's stranger than strange. Before we begin, you may want to arrange a blanket, a cushion, a comfortable seat, and maybe some cocoa and something to eat. I'll warn you, of course, before we commence, my story is eerie and full of suspense, brimming with danger and narrow escapes and creatures of many remarkable shapes, dragons and ogres and gorgons and more, and creatures you've not even heard of before, and faraway places, there's plenty of those, and menacing villains to tingle your toes, so ready your metal and steady your heart, it's time for my story's mysterious start. Robert Paul Weston, Zorgamazoo A Lock Shock, A Fabulism Chapter 6 A Long List of Deadly Lies Tap, tap, tap. The Right Honorable Lady Faderil and Lord Pessick. A powdered page in an embroidered coat ushers us through the grand double doors. A horn blares. The Chamberlain executes a sweeping bow and moves aside before I can kick him. The hall is grandiose, lurid in pink and yellow, tapestries hanging from every wall. Their themes are all domestic and mercantile, how the great mostocks of Cathaca brought pork bellies and butter to benighted savages everywhere. Courtiers line the walls, murmuring and gossiping like the useless parasites they are. Guards with crossbows stand in alcoves above. Epley and I, sweating in heavy brocade, slowly walk down the central carpet. It is obvious she is having the time of her life. I am on the lookout for hairless children. At the carpet's end is a dais, and atop the dais a gilt throne. Atop the throne is the fat man I vaguely recall. He evokes in me a feeling of disgust, but also a deep exhaustion. No matter how I scour this land with fire, these smug traders always find a way to climb back to the top. My exhaustion even extends to my own violence. I am tired of popping these balloons. There must be some other way. I know. I will somehow make him give me his kingdom. I will make sure he does so of his own accord, and have him believe I am doing him a favor. He will beg me to take it. Yes, that sounds refreshingly different. Now how shall I proceed? The fat man stands. He holds out welcoming arms as if embracing us from a distance. My cousins, we welcome you to Cathaca. Epley curtsies primly. As bald Micron, dressed as the bewigged Pessick, I remove my wide blue velvet hat resplendent with white arc-bird feathers and execute a perfect bow. Count Mostock, we have long meant to visit fair Cathaca. For a thousand leagues at every compass point, it is known as the capital of charity and grace and learning. A murmur from the crowd behind me tells me that my honeyed words have been well received. The fat man makes an inaudible joke to a nearby favorite. They both laugh. We know little of the upend and new tofty, he replies. Yet we are eager to hear more. You must be a distaff branch from the second wife of my great-granduncle Escuta Pringe, the Mortimer Prince. The Chishalak Empire figures prominently in our heraldry. 
as it does ours. We beam at each other, pleased as peaches in syrup. He clasps his hands and raises his cherubic face to the rafters. With daft adulation, he addresses some invisible point in the sky. Oh, lady of light, he begins. I realize it is a prayer. I try to look suitably pious, but the effect, as ever, is ruined by my fulminating ire. Grant us the truth of your holy love through the power of thy mercy. The truth of the power of the mercy is granted with love, they all respond in a harmonizing chorus. Lubida, you banish every shadow and fill our hearts with love. Let us reflect on your good deeds this day and begin with the parable of the fishnet and the frog. One day the young lady Lubida departed from her home in fair Inselim with nothing more than a pair of maids. I'd heard enough of his sermon. I grow restless, and a restless apsom is a dangerous apsom. Him, I shout, singling out a random middle-aged man with three chins and a substantial belly. I launch myself at him, head down, roaring, save the count! I hit the man with a shoulder, right in the linen hose above the knees. He falls backward against a squealing crush of family and friends. Down! Everyone get down! I screech, my knee in his gut. He waves his arms against me with surprising strength. Mayhap he's an old soldier turned soft. I bellow as his hand connects with my jaw. Nay, you shall not slay him, foul deceiver! I crack him across the bridge of his nose with my elbow, and blood flies. Lord Pethick! The Count's plaintive voice rises above the screams and cries, the very music of chaos. Released my uncle at once! My voice is a hoarse, desperate cry. I dare not, cousin! But why? Baron Houghty is the last man to ever threaten me. I pull the unfortunate bloke to his knees. He gabbles and tries to contain the blood fountaining from his nose. Apologies, your grace, for upsetting the decorum of your splendid court. But I am a lord with a strange vocation. I have tracked this villain across the breadth of a lockshock, and only now do I divine his wicked strategy. He means to assassinate you. I hold him by the collar and resist all attempts from his allies to remove my hands from him. But this is my mother's own brother. Kennebel Houghty raised me for most of my youth. Release him at once. I will not, my lord, the court gasp, for this is not Kebabble Houghty. With my offhand, I scry a thromadurgical gesture in the air and invoke a cheap illusion upon his head. I grasp his forelock and tug, and the entire court sees me pull a mask of skin and hair from him, revealing a red-skinned demon with slitted yellow eyes and a forked tongue. The spell translates his protests into furious hisses, and the courtiers stampede the exits. I cry, The light will always prevail! and pull a ceremonial dagger from a nearby belt. I force the demon's jaw up and drag its edge across his throat with a single practiced slice. Blood fountains from the wound. I don't have the wherewithal to make it look like purple demon blood, so I guess those who think on it later will wonder why a demon bled like a man. But by then I shall be gone from this forgettable backwater, or the world will have detonated or something. 
he collapses, twitching at my feet. The last of the courtiers drag each other from the grand hall. Soon nothing is left but the echoes of his death rattle. Well, that and the guards with crossbows in the alcoves above, and an armored knight standing beside the count, with Epley on the stairs, long knife out, ready to fight the demon to save Mostock. The spoiled creature has noticed this, but he has too much else on his mind to investigate any warm feelings he may have for the strange, tall maiden. He turns to me instead. What in Lubina's name is happening here? Where is my uncle? Dead. It's the only way the demon was able to assume his form. Perhaps for days or weeks now. We will search for him to give him a proper burial, my lord. I am sorry. The blood is sticky and warm on the front of my robes. One shoe has filled with it, and my foot makes a sucking sound as I step toward him. Listen closely, cousin. A terrible burden has been placed upon you. We have protected you as long as we could, but your enemies are just too many, and they are far too strong. A secret war, hidden from nearly all men, has been waged for some time now between the forces of valor and evil. But you, you shine so bright, my lord. It was only a matter of time before the legions of evil turned their attentions to you. I don't understand. A secret war. What is this? Tell him, sergeant. Ha, let's see what Epley does with that. First, that she is now revealed to be some sort of sergeant, and second, that she must invent on the spot a story that agrees with all my new facts. I stand at one of the narrow, stained-glass windows and try to peer at the courtyard outside, but the glass is too much stained. I shatter the window with the bloody pommel of the knife to peer out. Not the window, the Count complains. That glass is priceless. More priceless than your life? I need to see if other threats approach. He appeals to his champion, who has stepped out from behind the throne. Burus, do something. This, he bites his knuckle and swallows a scream. This was meant to be a light day on the schedule. Burus crosses to Epley, a hardened veteran with drooping mustaches and no love in his gaze. You heard the Count. What in Lumina's name is going on here? Just who are you people? Sir, she turns to him, hands up, playing for time. My lord, stay your questions. Let us secure your safety first. We will stay nothing. By the order of the Fifteen Feasts, I demand you tell the Count what is happening here at once. I turn back to the hall. The man deserves an explanation, Sergeant. That irks her, and she glares at me. Don't ever speak to me in that tone of voice again, Second Grenadier. You may be a specialist, but I still outrank you. I demand an apology. At once. Delightful. I turn and humbly bow my head. I beg your apology, Sergeant. My blood is afire, and I spoke out of turn. It will not happen again. Good. See that it doesn't. Epley turns back to Boris and shakes her head. She turns to the Count and measures him, as if she must consider how much to tell him. Finally, she says, Tell us, my lord, of your status with Juventa. Juventa? Gah! What does she have to do with this? She must be on the side of evil, is she not? 
Our borders haven't known peace in a generation. Oh, the old mountain goat pretends there's a high country rabble she can't control, so they sweep down to plague our villages and border towns every year. They even have a name for their raiding season. It's called the Ashables, because they burn everything they find, every one. Yet we have restrained ourselves for ages, knowing that the only real answer is an outright invasion and extermination of every bandit in every canyon. But so far we have not done so, and you'll find that we only transgress her borders to track these raiders down and bring them back to justice. Yet she tries to convince the world that Mostocks are the aggressors, as if we had any use for those hideous cold mountains when we are more than satisfied with our wide river valleys. Do you come from her? If so, tell Juventa for me. No, we don't represent Juventa. Epley finally interrupts him. And as far as we know, she's as blissfully unaware of the Matchstick Rebellion as you were until ten minutes ago. The Matchstick Rebellion? Yes, my lord. Matches are an ancient tool for creating fire. Take a thin splinter of wood. Daub the end with dried sulfur. Yes, yes, I know what matchsticks were. But what is this rebellion? This is the war we speak of. It's about igniting certain places in a lock shark, you see, and cleansing the land with fire. Places like Kathaka are their prime targets. But we are here to protect you, my lord. We are... Shall I tell them? She frowns at me. I bow to Burrus and address the Count. Gondea Mostok, by the order of the Cloaked Council, if we tell you any more, we will gain the right to slay you if you are in danger of compromising our identities. Do you agree to this? Mostok only gapes at me. My lord, Burrus sputters, you cannot. The right to slay me, I do not. I certainly do not. I don't need to know any more. Just promise me, well, that you remain on my side. Are there any more of these shape-shifting? He waves his hand at the remains of his uncle. Demons, I provide, most likely. They generally travel in packs, in waves. They nearly brought Limic down over the winter, but we beat them back in the end, didn't we, Sergeant? I don't like talking about it. Epley grabs Boris and points at the Count. Got him close. Trust no one, even those you've known your whole life. Take him to a defensible location. No, wait, Pesek, should we put him on top of a tower instead? On top of a tower? Mostark squeals. Now? With demons about? Not yet, I decide. There will be time later to use Milord as bait. Mostark shares gaping outrage with his champion. I plow on. First we must shake this tree and see what falls out. I look at the guards in the alcoves above. There's one! I point at a random man. A demon! By the grace of Lumina, shoot him! Shoot him before he transforms! The guard puts his hands up and makes an inarticulate sound of protest as six bolts bury themselves in his body and he topples backward out of view. Several who shot him cry out with grief. Others study their fellows, hastily reloading, unsure who may betray them next. To Absim, this is akin to eating candied yams. Boros curses and drags the Count to a narrow door behind the throne. They pass within and lock the door behind them. The guards remove themselves from the alcoves in a clamor of dismay. Soon Epley and I are alone in the room. 
She kneels at the side of the corpse, pilfering him. It's been a long day, and yet it's hardly noon. I'm hungry, and I'm ready for a nap. Answer me this. Did you just kill an innocent man in cold blood? Are you blind? I hide my protest behind a cunning smile. Could you not see he was a demon? A demon? Oh, I see. I see in truth. She lifts one of his human hands and removes the rings before letting it fall. She makes some internal decision and lets a bitter laugh escape. Here's his purse. We can wash the blood off. These sovereigns should get us whatever we need. I like her less when she is afflicted by conscience. I spin away, declaring with airy command, What an infernal gentleman such as myself requires is spice. But in this land of the bland, spice is the one thing money can't buy. So his coins therefore do not provide for all needs. That's what your precious clerestomy is for. I'll summon as many spices as you need once the sun sets. But we should be settled somewhere first. Perhaps we can just take one of the rooms here in the castle. There must be an empty one somewhere. She crosses to the door and then realizes I haven't followed her yet. What's your play, Lord Pessick? Is staying in the castle tonight in keeping with whatever strategy you may have? What strategy? Say no more. She opens the door and exits without me. The jewels wheel overhead. I've drunk enough wine to crush me under a weight of velvet. We lie sprawled on the slate tiles of a wing of the castle. Epley crouches like a gangly gargoyle on the roof's peak, her pale face tilted upward. She raises a hand, and as if in reply, a stream of green jewels race across the heavens, following her gesture. And now the pink ones? With her other hand, she raises a swarm of pink jewels from the horizon, above the sleeping city below. They wink cheerily. I've heard... She calls out to me, that if you travel north it gets colder, and the sun gets lower in the sky, until you find ice that never melts, and bears as white as snow up near the top of the world, and in the winter there the sun never breaks the horizon, and it is night for weeks on end, and cold. I want to live there in the winter, just me and the jewels. I can invoke warmth as needed. I suppose if I have a dream, it is that. A solitary black tower at the point of land furthest north, surrounded by ice. Most of those nights are cloudy, by the way. You can't see the stars. I shall be the winter witch. No, the empress of the night. No, you're the ice queen, and you know it. She laughs, pleased. Nay, you'll never know my warmth, you old creep. To you, I am solid ice. But that's only because you always force me to defend myself against you. Epley returns to her clerestomic studies, and I consider what she meant. My unwanted attention turns her to ice. Hmm. I suppose it is a sign of progress. Usually my unwanted attention turns people into a river of blood. But having this prudish creature hold me at arm's length is tiresome. Not that I dream of seeing her naked. I just have no impulse control. I am not a lord of evil. I am merely a spoiled child. I don't realize I've said it aloud until she responds derisively. The truest thing you've yet said. Ha! Joke's on you, wench. I'm a lord of evil after all. 
I pick at the crusted blood beneath my fingernails and study the few lit windows in the city below, where candles indicate the labors of restless souls like us. What folly! They crowd into cities and spend every moment pursuing solitude. They dream of living in a village but spend their days deriding villagers. They work the nights away, dreaming of the day they may rest. Oh, I know. You know what? I know what to do. I reflected on how worthless the lives in the city below are, and a very compelling solution occurred to me. My crom, Pesic, Sergeant Faderil, Specialist Pesic, if you please. I don't like that look in your eye. What mischief are you considering? Arson. Oh, light and love, are you serious? Just consider, Sergeant, the demons are on the loose. They are igneous by nature. Fire springs up wherever they tread. Then let it spring. Why must we aid it? Sweet Curtie Cumpland, because I'm a sorcerer. As much as you yearn to live in your sad tower on the ice, I long to burn yon boulevard of estates. See it? That one there, with the gables just daring me to do it. What is wrong with you, sorcerer? Do you all act this way? Ha! In our community, I'm considered one of the sane and balanced ones. Now come, it is time to spread panic and woe. I leap from the roof amid a clatter of falling tiles and land on someone's balcony. A squawk comes from within the darkened bedchamber. Then a maid calls out in an interior hall. Epley picks her way slowly down from above, carrying our empty bottles like a dutiful helpmeet. You stop right there, she hisses. I appreciate you cleaning up after me, mother. She throws a bottle at me, and it shatters against the flagstones of the balcony. Now the voices within grow angry, demanding answers and making threats. I beckon to her. Hurry, before some fat official arrives. I will not. Her intransigent fists are clenched at her sides. Something about her stubbornness lights my fuse. But I must burn. A man's round face appears in the balcony door, and I splay my fingers at him. A thromedurgic fire erupts outward, and he falls back with a cry, his hair smoking. Oops. I make a surprised grimace at Epley, then quickly replace it with a calculated expression. No. Ah, Sergeant, the demon possessed me before I slew it. Did I hurt anyone? Only the kind gentleman in that chamber. The demon blasted him with fire, specialist. Oh, Lumina, no. I make matronly gestures with my hands and enter the bedchamber to their rising cries of alarm. Pesic, stop, Epley calls out behind me. Pesic, come back here. Lords, ladies, everyone. I bow and smile at the darkened room and glide across the thick carpet to the far wall to where yellow light spills from under the door. For the burns, I recommend butter, and when the blisters weep, tend them with distilled water and spirits. Farewell. I seize the door and open it just as servants crowd the hall beyond. My way is blocked. I look over their heads and screech, There! The demon! They all scatter, pushing past me into the chamber. I hurry down the hall, unsure if Epley still pursues me. It is the dead of night, and the palace is slow to stir. A door opens, and a gowned figure leans out with a candle. Hunting them, I hiss at her, putting my finger to my lips. Bar this door, and commend your soul to the light. She yelps and pulls back. The door slams as I descend a servant's stair. 
through the kitchens and out to the yards, then into a guardhouse and up onto the walls overlooking the boulevard with the gabled estates. A wicked chuckle keeps bubbling up within me, like a child with a magnifying glass on an anthill. I lift my hands. Pesic, don't! Epley appears behind me, pulling at my arms. Oh, spare me your decency! I snarl at her and spin in her grasp. Think about who you are working so hard to defend. These are the overlords, the slave masters, the parasites. Their people, families, and what about their servants? You don't care about their injustice. You just want to hear their cries of suffering. So we are agreed. I lift a hand, cupping a greasy fireball. Epley knocks my hand sideways, and the fireball gutters against a stone wall and dies. I whirl on her. Hey, lady, I don't tear pages out of your little book. Don't waste my fire. Her fist closes around my cloak and yanks me back with surprising force. If you burn that building, I will beat you stupid. My smile glitters. She doesn't know that I could vaporize her in an instant. My hand curls into a phrygnomonic symbol. She slaps my face with enough force to knock me over. My cheek stings so bad my eyes water. Snap out of it, Pesic. Her voice is pitched loud, most likely for the benefit of someone I don't see. Dispossess him, foul thing. She strikes me again, and I cower. Playing along, I growl some hard consonants and claw at her. She pours water on my head, and I pretend it burns, howling in agony. Distant voices cry out in alarm, then recede. That wasn't water. It was wine. Our last wine. Why did you do that? Quick thinking and an excess of decency. Now behave yourself. But that is not my way. We face off. Suddenly she stiffens, looking upward. I do too. A luminous cloud sails overhead, glowing softly yellow in the night sky. What is it? I know very well what it is, or rather who, but I'd prefer not to speak his name, not if I hope to survive the night. You're right. I suddenly surrender and grab her by the hand. Now I'm the one pulling her from the wall. I've been a bad boy, very naughty. In fact, I belong in a dungeon. Yes, deep underground. Hurry, hurry now. But what is that cloud doing? Nothing good, I'm sure of it. There, to the guard tower now. Guards, guards! Ah, yes, there's a fine-looking gentleman. You, Sarah, wake up. Your martial skills are needed. Arrest that man. He blinks, beady eyes, in a brown, bearded face. Eh? Who are ye? He straightens the iron cap on his head and looks around, peering into the dark. Arrest what man? This man, I point to myself. For crimes against the state, or at least against the city, I, uh, I took the name of Gundea Mostock in vain. I called him a lickspittle and a cad, the unfortunate result of an unwanted pregnancy, a man so fat the pigs wouldn't share their sty. The guard looks at Epley, his mouth hanging open. He's insulting the Count for some reason. Her explanation is dry and offhand, which only increases his confusion. Who are you? I'm the man calling Count Mostock an overripe egg, an unpopped zit, a rotten fruit basket his mother returned after the Plantagy feast. If he was run through a sausage maker, he could feed the people for a week. If he was burned at the stake, his fat would flare brighter than the sun. And still he won't arrest me. 
The dullard looks back and forth between Epley and me, fingering his truncheon. I cast a nervous look over my shoulder to see the yellow cloud sailing our way. Chaos! I sing out, pulling his truncheon from his belt and cracking it against his knee. Chaos and pain! That does the trick. He falls on me like a dying steer. In the dungeon cell beneath the very same tower, only moments later, I finally breathe a sigh of relief. Epley stands on the other side of the bars, studying me, mystified. The guard has already cursed at me and departed. She waits for him to close the door at the top of the stair. I have no idea what you're doing, but I no longer care. Goodbye, my crumb. She shakes her head, finally disgusted with me, and turns away. Wait, goodbye. Don't you mean good night? I cannot trust someone who doesn't trust me. I mean goodbye. No, hold on, dear Epley. What do you mean I don't trust you? I brought you here, didn't I? We play a deadly game here. I've put my life in your hands. How much more trust do you need than that? What is the significance of that yellow cloud? I fall silent. Precisely. Goodbye. Stop. Come back. I shall tell you. With a tiny curl at the corner of her mouth, she relishes her triumph over me. She leans against the bars, all ears. See, it all began many years ago as a prank. You, you look like a strapping lad. Come help me with this load. I turn to see who is making such demands of me, but it's Fen he's ordering around. Makes sense. Fen is a handspan taller than me and broader in the shoulders. He lifts the gray bolt of linen the customer needs from the top shelf and carries it with him to the door of the mercantile, where the man pays him handsomely with three copper pennies. Fen returns, pleased, jingling the pennies in his hand. This is his first honest pay. I could see us staying here, App, running the shop, wearing striped aprons, handing out sugar sticks at Locks Repast. We could marry sisters and build a big house on the town square grow old here. We share a look, then fill the dusty room with gales of laughter. Collapsing into each other's arms, we eventually wipe our eyes and catch our breaths. Then I check on the clerk and her husband, bound and gagged behind the counter. We'd been chased by a whirlwind of wolvines through a dense dark forest in the snow. It had been a close call. See, it had started the day before. I had dared Fen during the convocation in Trith of the new Radnall scribe to make one of his legs disappear during his acceptance speech. Fen, being new to his powers, had botched the job. The scribe's leg suddenly vanished, and he toppled, as intended. But then a rush of unintended blood poured from beneath his robes, and the old fat fool was dead in moments. The other scribes, masters of a variety of arts, turned on the two lads in the crowd as soon as they had mastered their despair. By then we were sprinting away, laughing wildly, making our way to the river docks. A plasmic snare descended on Fen and brought him howling to the ground. I cut him free with a summoned blade of thromadurgic fire, scoring his skin in my haste. He yelped, then continued laughing as their astral forms appeared overhead. There, an amplified voice roared. I pulled Fen to the docks and we threw ourselves in the freezing black current. 
Rushing black water tumbled us about and confounded our pursuers. I flirted with the goddess of drowning. Then Fen found me in the tumult and his hand covered my face. Light flashed, and suddenly I could breathe down here. He was always more facile with water than me. I spread my hand across his back and spread warmth into both our bodies. Now we had comfort. Catch me a fish and I shall never need to leave. But neither of us are creatures of water. I am a child of the earth and fend the sky. We couldn't stay submerged for too long. It just became claustrophobic. We dragged ourselves to an overhung bank and slinked from the river beneath its cover. That was when the Wolvines found us, chasing us through the undergrowth and into a narrow canyon. They surrounded us there, emerging from behind rocks with evil grins, making sure we knew of our doom before closing in. Fen and I clutched each other, inseparable, dead and dead. I thought they'd be the last words I ever heard him say. Then I recalled a favor that was owed me. A Pixity had hired me to kill an ogre the year before, but had no payment when the bill came due. I squeezed a little blue creep in my fist when he told me I really needed the coin, but instead I was going to have to settle for the amusement of watching his head pop off. Wait, wait, he'd said. I'll grant you a wish. Whenever you need it, only call for Felixity, young master, and I will be there. Felixity, I yelled in that narrow canyon. The wolvines growled and instructed me in the meaning of the word slavering. Their yellow eyes narrowed as they moved in. Yes? Yes? Oh. The pixity appeared in a puff of blue dust. He flitted about the gloomy scene, taking it all in, then hovered before my face. What would you have of me, young master? Get us out of here, any way you can. I leaned against the same bars Epley did just on the opposite side. My chin rested in my hand. I looked up at her with a shrug. And that's how Fen and I found ourselves right back in Trith, standing over the insensate forms of the clerk and her husband. They had somehow been exchanged for us, though we kept their bodies. I'm fairly sure their spirits were chased by the wolvines through the dark forest. All I know is that the Pixity saved us, and his debt to me was discharged. You still haven't told me whose yellow cloud that is. Ah, well, that's the next part of the story. Fen decided we weren't safe on the ground, so we burned the mercantile that night and escaped to the sky. Like I said, he was a master of it. Yes, and you said you were a master of Earth. I've never heard a sorcerer claim such a thing. Ah, I'd forgotten which persona I was presenting to her. So I had. Well, it was a passing phase, at least for me. But he became a true lord of the air. Lord of the air? Who is he? I merely looked at her, waiting for her to put the obvious clues together. Fen, driving clouds around. Aha! Fenril Huth, the Cloud Watcher. Yes, hush. You know him? We were closer than lovers once. She shivers, staring about her, suddenly uncertain of her own safety. Epley pulls a key from beneath her cloak and puts it in the door's lock. I stole this from the guard. I couldn't trust him to keep you imprisoned. Don't let me out now, fair maid. I'm not. I'm joining you in there. She slams the door shut behind her. I'd like to say that we passed the rest of the night in blissful embrace. 
but that would be a lie. She took the one narrow cot and forced me to sleep on the floor. Thanks for listening to A Lock Shock. Stay tuned every week for new episodes. Tell your friends and keep an eye out for other stories told here on The Unuseful Hours.